BranchallFoundation.com podcasts. Africa, the place of origins. This is the title of our latest iLecture film, due to be released shortly. In it, we explore the incredible array of ancient rock art found and still being found on the African continent. But Africa, as we know, is not a homogenous entity. The climate, terrain, and ethnicity is extremely varied, and this is reflected in the rock art traditions made by many different groups over thousands of years. Dr. Ben Smith of the Rock Art Research Institute, based at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa, identifies several major zones. Beginning in the dry deserts of the Sahara, we find some of Africa's oldest exposed rock paintings and engravings. These date back to some 12,000 years ago, and interestingly, they depict a Sahara that was a wet and rich grassland supporting great herds of plains animals. Like all of Africa's hunter-gatherer arts, this was far from a simple record of daily life. We see creatures that are part human, part animal. Giraffe with lines emanating from their mouths that meander across the rock face until they finally join to a floating human form, and many other mysterious beings. Moving south, we enter what is now the tropical zone of Africa, famous for its dark, impenetrable rainforests. This is the land of the forest hunter-gatherers that we know as the Pygmies. Across the whole of the forest region from Uganda to Angola, we find a remarkable tradition of geometric art, known as the Schematic Art Zone. Within this zone, however, there are also a small number of sites with highly stylized and distorted animal figures, as well as rows of finger dots. The geometric art always dominates, but the two traditions appear together as a pair. They occur near each other, but are always kept apart. Is this a different tradition practiced by a different group of hunter-gatherers, or practiced at a different time? We still don't know. Moving east in central Tanzania, we find another zone of rock art, occurring at just a few hundred sites in an area of land less than 100 kilometers in diameter. The art is made up entirely of animal and human forms. A number of its elements, such as its distinctive human head forms, are unique. The rock art distribution corresponds to the spread of people who speak click languages, the Sandwe and the Hadza. Researchers believe that this rock art was linked to a particular Sandwe ritual, most notably to Simbo, an ecstatic dance in which the Sandwe communicate with their spirits. Far to the south, beyond the great Zambezi River, is the land of the oldest known of all the first peoples, the San, or Bushmen, whose rock paintings and engravings, dating to the past 10,000 years, are among the most complex and sophisticated in terms of symbolism. The San Bushmen lie at the root of the human tree, and it was for this reason, while we were on a Bradshaw Foundation field expedition exploring the rock art of South Africa, I was afforded the opportunity to explore the art of the San and their importance in the genetic makeup of Africa with Dr. Ben Smith at the Rock Art Research Institute. Yeah, so traditionally Southern Africa, that's sort of the Zambezi southwards, a massive area of land, um, is the ancestral territory of peoples we know today as San. In the past, we often call um, the, those people Bushmen. Um, 
those two words are interchangeable. It's just a question of, of what the people themselves prefer to be called <clears throat> as to whether you choose the word Bushman or San. Um, the Bushman or San have been around in Southern Africa for as long as we can tell. The, language, the linguists tell us that the languages have been here literally forever. You know, they, they talk of 40, 50, 60,000 years. The geneticists say that the San have um, these genetic traces that no one else in the world has. And that shows us that they have they have been here, um, and that uh, they have human they have genetic traces that put them right at the the root of the human tree, and that the rest of us therefore um, are related to them, but they are not as closely related to us. They have they have unique markers that we don't have. Um, and in terms of archaeology, we see um, stone a seamless stone tool tradition and a seamless art tradition going back as far as we can see. So we have rock art going back to 27,000 years with the Apollo 11 stones. So um, we think that the, the San painting tradition is perhaps the, the longest continuing art tradition in the world. We can trace it over 27,000 years. There are hundreds of San languages, and each one is entirely different. So two different San languages will be as different as English and Chinese. Um, they really are extremely different. And if you want to speak to your neighbor, you need to know their language. You can't use your own. Um, and so when one thinks of a word like the word for spiritual power, this, this substance that the eland has, uh, in, um, in the South African um, calm group, uh, the, the name for power is gri. Therefore, the person that holds power is a gricha, someone who is full of power. Whereas if you go to the Kalahari, the word for power is ngum. And if you want to say someone who is full of power, we might say a shaman someone, or, a, or a religious specialist or something like that, it would be Ngumhau. South Africa is somewhat unusual in terms of public archaeology. In the, you know, America and Europe, every, every evening on television there will be at least one archaeological program that you can watch. South Africa, it's not like that, and it's not like that because of the particular history of South Africa. So it's only since 1994 that archaeology has in fact even been recognized by the state as something worth supporting. Um, there were no public archaeology sites in South Africa prior to 1994. So one of the aims of every uh, committed archaeologist working in Southern Africa now, and South Africa particularly, um, is to see a, a complete transformation in the importance of archaeology within South African society. So to create a network of South African public archaeology sites that inform and remind people of the incredibly rich past um, that is is demonstrably there, and that was in some ways denied to them by the apartheid regime. And so at the heart of that has been our attempt to develop rock art as one of those um, centres of identity in the new South Africa, where people can um, marvel just at this incredible heritage going back to the dawn of humanity. So developing a range of rock art sites like Game Pass, like Camburg, and a museum here in Joburg at the heart of it, where you can come and learn about rock art and then be directed off to go and see some of the great sites around South Africa. So the, the central ritual for the San is, is their great dance, um, <clears throat> which is a trance dance. And they will dance around for some hours. Um, and the women will sit around a fire, clapping the rhythm of the dance, uh, singing these incredibly melodic songs. And the combination of that and the flickering fire um, and also um, the sort of uh, the, the way that the the dancers breathe, sort of <laughs> almost anyone breathing like that for an extended period of time will go into trance fairly quickly. And the the very 
old shamans are able literally within a couple of minutes if they really want to to push themselves into a trance state and they believe that when they go into a trance state that their spirit leaves their body and that they travel off to the world of the sky or the world of the underground and there they will have powerful visions visions of god's place visions of magical things and that when they come back from their trance they can use the power and the knowledge that they've harnessed for the benefit of the group and so the rock art is we think an attempt um, or more than an attempt it's it the rock art actually captured the power of these visions both in terms of what it depicted so it showed the things that people had seen in their visions so what the rock art allowed people to do was to share the things that a particular person had seen and was drawing power from and to share those with the group but more than that they actually put power into the paint so they put blood they put semen they put um, fat into the paint, all powerful things. So not, not because they helped the color or helped it to bond, but because it was powerful. And so that when you were building up layers of painting, you were also building up layers of power that you can then draw upon um, for the benefit of your group afterwards. And you've literally got, you have to imagine, you've literally got the spirit world captured on the rock. Um, so first of all, it helps people who are not trans who don't have experience of trance, to see what that spirit world is like and to understand some of the magical things of the other world. Um, you know, much as the stained glass windows in a, in a European cathedral attempt to sort of bring the glory of God to the, to the ordinary people. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, the San rock art uh, achieved that in their society. Um, but it was much more than that. It was a, it was a practical um, resource that could be drawn upon for the benefit of the group. We don't know exactly why people paint it, but <clears throat> when you understand the meaning of the art, you can um, you can get a pretty good idea of what the painting was intended to do. Because <clears throat> firstly, they're capturing a whole range of visions that only particular individuals saw. So it's fairly clear that the reason that they were painting was so that they can share those with a bigger group. Because the <clears throat> observation of the painting was something that the broader group was able to do. So just in the way that they sit in the Kalahari today and discuss what they saw in the in the tron, in, in the trance dance and the vision, um, and they discuss it with the whole group. So the paintings were able to bring that to life in a much more um, dynamic way, really, than discussion would do. <clears throat> but the second aspect is that the paintings themselves had power, so that they put magical substances into the paint, <clears throat> and say so, um, the paintings would also be a resource, a, a spiritual resource that people could draw on. One sort of quite remarkable way that we have into this is, is through a, an old lady that uh, Peter Jolly and Franz Prince um, uh, were working with in the southern Drakensberg, a lady called Mankundi, and her father was one of the very last painters in that area. And we know the paintings that he made, and, and she was able to tell us a little bit about the rituals that she, she saw when she was young. And he used to go to the rock art sites um, and put his hands out uh, as if to touch the paintings, and that he would draw spiritual sustenance, spiritual potency, um, the substance that we call the uh, power, from the art. And he would then use that in his healing ceremonies. So he was a, a healer and a rainmaker, and he would use the power in those ways. So the paintings were something quite active, of something you could use for the benefit of society. There were other rock art traditions being made in southern Africa at this time. Pastoralist groups, known as Koa Kern, were finger-painting and engraving a tradition of geometric art 
as part of their boys and girls initiation ceremonies. The artists used white as their primary colour, and pigment is often applied by hand rather than using a brush. So given this ancient rock art was being practiced by hunter-gatherer societies, why was there such diversity? For example, at the Debus outcrop in the Sahara, in Niger, we find two larger-than-life-size carvings of giraffe, initially hidden from view at the top of the outcrop. However, immediately in view, around the edge of the outcrop, are cruder, smaller, and more common carvings depicting various scenes. I put this question of diversity in rock art to the French archaeologist Dr. Jean Clot, who carried out extensive research at the Debus outcrop. There is no, no rule. I mean, there is no overruling uh, concept because it depends on the cultures. It's their choices. And even in the same culture, you can have something pretty different. For example, at Dabous, uh, we have those fantastic giraffes. But the rest of the art around Dabous is not that great. It's, uh, it's commonplace. It's the kind of art we have all over the area. And those giraffes uh, stand out because of their size, because they are bigger than, than uh, nature. They are bigger than life size. And uh, because of the technique, because they are partly sculptured and smooth, etc. So a lot of work was involved in making those giraffes. And it's interesting also because they put them in a place uh, where they could not be seen. You had to go there. And if you just pass along Dabous, on any side of Dabous, you will never see the giraffes. You've got to climb the rocks and get there, you see. So that's probably significant. Well, why? We don't know. Because all the other engravings in Dabus, and there are many giraffes in, in, in Dabus, they're different. So why did they put, the, the, did they invest so much time and trouble and expertise doing the, those giraffes? And then you have some giraffes who are, which are very scarce. Who knows? I mean, we have no idea. We can't. It, it, it's something happened. Something. Who knows? The giraffe carvings of Debus are one of the finest examples of African rock art that have been discovered, and yet their diversity from other rock art remains a mystery. A mystery we explore in our eye lecture films available on our website. Our latest eye lecture film, Africa: The Place of Origins will reveal not only the variety of Africa's ancient rock art, but it will also point to this continent as the place of origin of art itself. But what does that tell us about our ancestors and the birth of modern humans? The Bradshaw Foundation, in conjunction with Professor Stephen Oppenheimer, has created an interactive map on our website called The Journey of Mankind, which charts the global journey of modern humans over the last 160,000 years. This map demonstrates the interactions of migration with climate over this period. It depicts us as the descendants of a small group of Africans who survived in the face of adversity to develop a sophisticated and socially interactive culture expressed through many forms. Based on a synthesis of the mtDNA and Y-chromosome evidence with archaeology, climatology and fossil study, Stephen Oppenheimer has tracked the roots and timing of migration placing them in context with ancient rock art around the world. The map is now being turned into a film, the first part of which, Out of Africa, is now available on our website. Oppenheimer states, 
In all our cells, we have genes. Genes are made up of DNA, the string-like code of life that determines what we are, from our fingernails to our innate potential for playing the piano. By analyzing genes, we can trace the geographic route taken by our ancestors back to an ultimate birthplace in Africa at the dawn of our species. Furthermore, if we take any two individuals and compare their genes, we will find that they share a more recent ancestor, living, in all probability, outside Africa. Oppenheimer believes that we can now prove where those ancestors lived and when they left their homelands. This remarkable proof has become fully possible only within the last decade as a result of pioneering work made by a number of people. So what is new about the map? Oppenheimer is proposing that there was a single successful exit from Africa 85,000 years ago. He states current out-of-Africa proponents have usually hedged their bets, claiming that Australians, Asians and Europeans came as separate migrations of Homo sapiens from Africa. Not so. The male and female genetic trees show only one line each coming out of Africa. This is the central argument in the map. There was only one main exodus of modern humans from Africa. Each gender line had only one common ancestor that respectively fathered and mothered the whole non-African world. The map also counters the view of the multi-regionalists who argue that the archaic human populations, Homo neanderthalensis, Neanderthals, in Europe and Homo erectus in the Far East, evolved into the local races we now see around the world. The implications of a single successful exit are significant and lie at the core of the map. This group was, in essence, the first cultural attaché for modern man. It proves that cognitive and intellectual modernity were already on board in Africa before the exodus. Everybody in the world today is linked by a common thread and a shared past, a unique blueprint of not just who we are, but where we came from a passport showing the routes we took and the places we visited on mankind's greatest journey, a journey of both art and of modern humans. Having begun in Africa, this continent truly is the place of origins. To find out more about rock art and cave paintings and the world of our ancestors, visit our website at www.bradshawfoundation.com.